Now tonight we're going to get into uh, the next leg of our, our weekend. And we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And I am going to read this, beginning with verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us now as we listen to your word. We pray that you would help us to not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We pray that tonight this text would minister to us, that you by your spirit would teach us that you would work in our hearts as we see the grace that is in this text. And we pray that our vision of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done would begin to come together, that we would see what it's all about, that we would see what it is that the Christian faith is teaching and what it means for us as we believe it. We pray that you would bless this time to be fruitful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, a couple years ago, my family plotted on me, and they bought me a Fitbit. Now, I didn't ask for nobody's Fitbit. I wasn't looking for a Fitbit. I wasn't thinking about a Fitbit. But they bought me a Fitbit. And if you're not familiar with what a Fitbit is, a Fitbit is this watch, and this device uh, Counts the number of steps that you take in a day. You see, I'm not wearing it now, right? 
done with the Fitbit. But this device counts the number of steps that you take in a day. And the Fitbit is automatically programmed with the standard of the American Heart Association that says you have to walk 10,000 steps a day in order to have a healthy heart. So, when I got this Fitbit, it looked pretty decent. So I was like, all right, I'll put it on. But the thing is programmed. So like, I would notice that at the end of every day, I would get these notifications from my Fitbit. And it would say, keep going, Russ. You're only 9,500 steps from your goal. <laughs> I was like, you can't judge me. But here, here's the deal. I kept getting the notifications of how far I was falling from the standard that is required to have a healthy heart, according to the American Heart Association. And it kept bugging me. Every day it did this to me. So I got tired of it after about two weeks. And so you know what I did? I, I went into the program and I changed it. And I moved the goal down to a thousand steps a day. So at the end of every day now, I was hearing, way to go Russ, you're killing it. You beat your goal by 15 steps. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I even had the nerve after a month of this to go up to Vanessa and I said, hey, babe, 30 days of meeting my goal. She's like, all right. <laughs> you see, the standard of Fitbit didn't suit me. And so I just went in and I changed the program to a standard that, that already suited what I was doing. Now, here's the deal. In, in the scriptures, we realize that God has given us a standard of neighbor love that is required for us to have a healthy heart before God. He has told us what it is that we have to do, how it is that we have to live in relationship to other people if we're going to say that we have healthy hearts before God. And every time we get into the Bible, every time we get into the scriptures, the story of God, we get these notifications that show us how far we are falling short of God's goal of neighbor love. But oftentimes what we do is we go into the program and we change the standard. Whether it's through a creative theological reasoning or whether it's through us putting our socio-political perspective onto the Bible, we've all figured out ways to go in and reduce the standard that God has given us for neighbor love. And what does that look like? We reduce the standard down to loving people who look like us. We reduce the standard down to loving people who act like us. We reduce the standard down to loving people who vote like us. We, we move the standard down to our own detriment, and then we have the nerve to think highly of our, 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 our neighbor-loving selves. We think that we can actually get credit for, for loving our neighbors if we only love the people who love us back and we only love the people who are easy to love. But that's equivalent to what I did with the Fitbit. It's going in and it's moving down the standards. And we can't have a healthy heart before God in that way. Now, here's the deal. The theme of our weekend, what we've been talking about, is what it is that actually happens in a person's life 
when the gospel gets a hold of our hearts? What kind of people do we become? And what does that look like in tangible form? Not in the ethereal, not in our well-wishing, but what does it look like in the concrete? How does a person relate to other people? How does a person relate to themselves? How does a person relate to God? What is the, the way that we navigate the world when the gospel gets a hold of our hearts? And tonight, we're going to talk about this very important theme of neighbor love. Neighbor love. And we're going to approach this text through two points. The first thing we're going to see is the call to neighbor love. And the second thing we're going to see is the cost of neighbor love. So let's look at our first point. The call to neighbor love. Now, when we drop into this text, we're not given much by way of a setting, but we're invited into a discussion that Jesus is having with a lawyer. And what the Bible means when it talks about a lawyer is not the kind of person that you think about. This is talking about someone who was an expert in the Jewish law. They were supposed to be a Bible expert, a, a theologian. One of the most important uh, voices to tell people what it was they were to think about the scriptures. They were the ones who helped to lay out for people what it was the rabbis were teaching about the scriptures. And the lawyer rises to ask Jesus a question. And it was the most pressing theological question of the day. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, asking this question was a way of figuring out where someone was on the spectrum. Are they a legitimate teacher or are they some whack job teacher? And so Jesus responds to the man's question and he responds with a question. Jesus would often do this. The man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what do the scriptures say? And the man repeats back to Jesus, what was the standard understanding of, of the Jewish people of the day? And it was a, a pulling together of multiple texts from the Old Testament, but it, it was reduced down. What is it all about? What does someone have to do to inherit eternal life? They have to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and they have to love their neighbor as themselves. They, that, that was what it was. And Jesus says in verse 28, that's right. Do this and you will live. And by responding this way, Jesus shows the man that he's an, an orthodox teacher. He's a faithful teacher. But the lawyer, he just has to take that extra step. He just pushed Jesus. And he says, and who is my neighbor? Now here's the deal. It may seem like a harmless, honest question that the lawyer is asking. But what you have to see is that there is something going on beneath the surface for the lawyer. Why does the lawyer ask, question, ask this question, and who is my neighbor? It tells us right in the passage. It tells us right in the passage. Verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. This is the, the subtext. And here's what you have to understand. The Jewish faith at the time, they, they, they had this paradigm that you were supposed to love the Lord your God. And if you loved God, then you would love His image in human beings. But there were two ways that they got creative and they got around the deeper significance of this call to neighbor love. The first way 
was that you could call isolation. And the, and the second way you could call it improvisation, okay? The first way was isolation, and it sounds something like this. We only spend time around our people, the good, the, the good folks, the, the good people. And we never run into those people out there. So if we are, we're never running into those difficult cases. So if we just love the people in our in-group, then we get credit for neighbor love. Isolationism. Stay away from the broken down, wretched, needy sinners. And let's just stay in our group. That was the first way they avoided the deeper call to neighbor love. The second way that they avoided the deeper call to neighbor love was through improvisation. You could say the first is isolate yourself. The second way was to justify yourself. Now, here's what it means. For the, for the lawyer to seek to justify himself was to seek to get an interpretation of neighbor that basically <laughs> lined up with what he was already doing. He wanted Jesus to say that the neighbor was the person that he was already dealing with. Let me put it another way. In this man's mind, there were two categories of people. There were neighbors, and then there were non-neighbors. There were people that you gave attention and love to, and there were people that you could safely ignore. He has these two categories of people, and guess who was in the neighbor category? All the people who were like him. All the people who thought like him. All the people who voted like him. All the people that shared his sensibilities. All the people that had the same ethnic and cultural heritage that he had. Those were neighbors. Non-neighbors were those people. The people who spoke with an accent that was different from theirs. The people who bought their food out of the ethnic aisle. Now, by the way, this is a pro tip. Every aisle in the grocery store is the ethnic aisle. Y'all know that, right? <laughs> there's no such thing as ethnic people and non-ethnic people. We're all ethnic people. All right, that's a freebie, right? That's a free charge. But that, that was those people. There were, there were people that he could safely ignore. Neighbors were good, decent folk. And non-neighbors were those people. Now think about it. No doubt, this lawyer had come across people earlier that day who looked different from him. And he looked at them and he said, hmm, non-neighbor. And then he had come across someone else in need who was from a different socioeconomic bracket. And they needed help. And he looked at them and he said, hmm, non-neighbor. <laughs> And then he came across someone who spoke a different language than he did, or, or maybe they were from a different country, and they were in need, and he saw them, he said, hmm, non-neighbor. And he thought to himself, you know, I'm pretty good at this neighbor love thing. Because he only loved the people it was convenient to love. He only loved the people who were easy to love. He only loved the people that loved him back, who shared his sensibilities. But here's the deal. <coughs> Anybody can call themselves loving if they get to define who it is that they're going to love. 
That, by the way, that's part of what we see in the polarization in politics. And you know what Jesus has to say about that? <laughs> Jesus says, anybody can love somebody who loves them back. Anybody can love a person that's like them. Now, you don't have to have any kind of special relationship to God in order to love people who love you back. That's easy. It's easy to invite people to your party who you know can invite you to their party. No, real love is when you can bless someone, when you can love someone who doesn't love you back. Now you're dealing with gospel love. Real love, real neighbor love, is when you can invite someone to your party who doesn't have enough money to throw their own party. They can't give you anything in return. That's real love. That's real service. What we're going to see in this text is that these were barriers to the kind of neighbor love and indiscriminate compassion to which God called his people. And Jesus isn't going to let the lawyer off the hook. And guess what? He's not letting you off the hook. He's not letting us off the hook either. Because what Jesus is going to show him is that he's not going to allow this man. He's not going to allow us to have the category of non-neighbor at all. He's not even going to give us that as a legitimate category. And the way that Jesus moves in on the man is again with a story. Look at verses 30 through 33. Jesus moves in on the man with a parable. And he tells the, the parable, the story of a certain man who's making the treacherous journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now listen. This was a journey that went from a very high altitude to a very low altitude. And it was a challenging journey. It was fraught with danger because there were these caves where robbers were known to hide out. And they would jump out and they would rob people. And most people would travel with a caravan for protection. They would have multiple people that would roll with them. They'd have an entourage, right? But apparently this man doesn't have community and he has to make the journey all by himself. And this man falls victim to robbers. And the text tells us in the story that the robbers stripped him, they beat him and they left him for dead. He was half dead on the side of the street. And the first thing you need to see is that the man doesn't have a theological problem. He has a social problem. He has a social problem. It's right here in the text. And what is the reaction to this scene? Think about the first listeners. What is their reaction? What is your reaction? As you listen to the telling of the story, you begin to lean in and you begin to wonder, who is going to help this, this dying man? Who's going to help this poor beaten up man on the road? And then, for the original listeners, all of a sudden, a note of optimism pops up. Because onto the scene comes a priest. This was a holy man. And, and it tells us the man was making his journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. So this priest is the equivalent of a pastor who has just stepped out of the pulpit after preaching a Sunday morning sermon. This priest had just finished serving at the temple in Jerusalem, and he was on his way back home to Jericho. He just steps out of the pulpit. 
and he comes across this man laying half dead on the side of the road. And we're optimistic. Surely this religious man is going to help the man on the side of the road. But our, but our hopes are dashed when we're told that the man passes by on the other side of the road. Now here's the deal. It doesn't tell us why the man passed by on the other side of the road. He might have had important things in his schedule. He may have had homework. He may have had something important on his schedule that he needed to tend to. He might have thought that he had a legitimate reason for passing by on the other side of the road. But Jesus doesn't tell us any of the reasons why. It, it simply is a note of, of condemnation that the man offered no help. That's the point. Regardless of his excuses, he offered no help. And that's where Jesus leaves it. And then we move on. Another character appears on the scene. A Levite. This was another man who worked in the temple. He was another religious professional. And now our hopes are raised up again. Another bit of optimism. Yes, okay, okay. The priest didn't help, but surely the Levite's going to help. And the Levite passes by on the other side. Again, no commentary on the reason. It doesn't tell us whether he had good motivations or bad motivations, whether he had important things going on, or he was just being careless and selfish. It doesn't tell us why. The bottom line is, regardless of his rationale, he offers no help. And as we're listening to this, we have to appreciate something. Look at the power of Jesus' teaching. You know what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is showing the lawyer what his thinking, what his theology looks like in story form. This is what it looks like when you can safely classify another person as a non-neighbor. It's ugly. And this is what our thinking looks like when we feel like we can safely classify people as non-neighbors. When we think that there are groups of people that we can safely ignore and still have God's approval of our ways. This is the ugliness of it. It's sad. This degree of selfishness and ugliness. You see how it lands on the heart. You see, you see how Jesus thinks on it. And we are left with this ache as we listen to the story. And we continue to wonder who will help this dying man, who's going to come to his aid? Who's going to come to his rescue? And then, onto the scene, comes an unexpected character. Jesus then moves on. He moves from the priest who passes by to the Levite who passes by. And then he says, but a Samaritan. And every one of the listeners there you can almost hear through the text the audible gasp from the crowd. They were like, a Samaritan? Because you know who the Samaritans were? Those people. They were the people from the other side of the tracks. They were the people who were considered half-breeds because they were half-Jewish and they were half a mixture of unfaithful heathens. 
And there is a long storied battle between the Samaritans and the true Jews. Because the assumption of the text is that the man who was beaten and left for dead is a Jewish man. And here it is. He gets help from someone that he would have considered to be an enemy. He gets help from someone that he he should have had no expectation that this Samaritan would stop for him. Days later, he might have kicked the dust off of his heels and spit on the ground in disregard and disrespect toward this Samaritan. But it is the Samaritan who steps up and helps him in his time of need. He had no reason to expect it. But at the end of the day, the despised person outshines the best that the lawyer and his tribe have to offer. And by the time the story ends, the call to neighbor love is landing forcefully upon the listener, isn't it? It's landing forcefully upon us. It should land on us with authority and lead us to repentance because it's in this moment where we see the standard of neighbor love that we see how far we fall from it. How we are reluctant to love the person that we deem to be awkward. How we talk a good game about being racially and ethnically inclusive, but when you look at our lives and our friendships and our relationships, there is no one to be found who is unlike us. We talk a good game. We know how to say what is politically correct and socially acceptable, but at the end of the day, our hearts are three sizes too small. We all know how to talk again, but think about it. Why do we do this? I think there are three primary emotional responses when we encounter people in need that keep us from neighbor love. The first is anger. So anger, shame, and fear. Think about it for your own life. I think each of us falls into one at least one of these categories. Why do we avoid people? Why do we avoid the neighbor who's in need of love? Anger. We react to them out of anger. We we wonder, man, if they would just get their act together, if they would just try harder, if they would just take responsibility for their lives, they wouldn't be in this situation. But now because of their bad decisions, they're imposing on my life. And it's not fair that I should have to pick up the pieces For them, not taking care of their responsibility. We only want to love people that we think deserve our love. We only want to love people that we think are trying hard enough. We We respond out of anger. Shame. Now this one, I want you to think about it like this. Most of the busyness of our lives, most of the achievements that we're pursuing, most of the ambitions that we have to succeed and to get good jobs and to make a lot of money, and to get good grades. You know what it's all about? It's all about covering that deep sense of shame in our lives. We feel like we aren't valuable. We feel like we're not worthy. We feel like there is something that we have to do in order to cover the deep sense of shame in our lives. And so we run around busy all the time. We fill our lives with activities And we run ourselves into the ground. And when someone else's need pops up, we think, I don't have time to deal with you. i got all of this stuff going on. And the reason why I have all this stuff going on, if you really think about it, is because I'm living out of a place of shame. 
I live out of a place of shame and I need to cover that shame. I need to crowd out that sense of shame. And so I don't have any bandwidth to help other people. The last one is fear. Why do we avoid neighbor love? Fear. We're afraid of what might happen if we get tied up with those people. What's going to happen to me if I try to help them? Because remember, the equivalent of this story is someone lying beaten in an alley. And you're like, I don't know what's going on over there. If I go over to help, what's going to happen to me? If I use my resources to help them, who's going to take care of me? Who's looking out for me? It's an orphan mentality that leads us to live in fear. There's no one else looking out for me. There's no one else that has my best interests at heart. I have to look out for me. And so because I have to look out for me, I don't have any ability to help anybody else. I'm afraid of what might happen if I get involved in the mess of that person's life. Yeah, that's too risky. These are some of the reasons why we avoid the call to neighbor love. But we need to continue listening to the story to see what Jesus is teaching us about neighbor love. And that brings us to the second point, the cost of neighbor love. What does Jesus mean when he talks about neighbor love? We see it in story form in the Samaritans. Look at verse 33. When the Samaritans saw him, he had compassion. And he didn't just have compassion. That compassion showed up in six concrete ways. Six concrete actions of the Samaritan. Look at this. This is what neighbor love looks like. First, he comes up to the man. The priest, it's not a small thing that the text tells us that the priest and the Levite, they walked by on the other side. They kept their distance. But the Samaritan comes to the man. He realizes that he can't help the man from afar. He can't just throw money at the problem. He gives his very self. And he comes to the man. Second, he dresses his wounds. And you know how he did that? He likely had to tear his own clothes to make bandages. Three, he anoints the cuts with oil and wine to address the wounds, depriving himself of refreshment and care for the man. Four, he loads the man on his own mule and he goes without relief in order to provide relief for this man. Five, he takes him to an inn. He doesn't leave the man where he finds him. He loads him up on his own animal and he takes the man to where he can find relief. And then six, he provides care and comfort to the man. He doesn't just dump him and leave He stays the night to care for him. He pays the cost up front and he ensures continued care for the man. The amount of money that he put up was enough for the man to stay 24 days at the inn in order to get well. He assumes total cost for his recovery. And then in verse 36, look at it. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? And the lawyer answers, he can't even say Samaritan. He's so, he's so mad about what Jesus did with this story. <laughs> he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Now, we tend to start with the wrong idea, friends. 
we think in this way. Okay, how can I do what Jesus is calling us to do without altering my lifestyle? How, how can I give like this without having to really give up anything of great value or importance to me? How can I help people without imposing too much on my freedoms and my enjoyments? You know, I have a, a high standard of life. I, I, I need to have a certain quality of life. So how can I maintain that quality of life and do what Jesus is calling me to do? How can I remain fairly selfish and concerned with my own affairs and still do what Jesus is saying I need to do? And you know what the answer to this is, right? You can't. You can't. You can't love neighbor and hold on to those commitments that you have. Not if you're going to do it like Jesus says it has to be done. I want you to imagine the lawyer leaving this conversation with Jesus rocked. Because remember, the whole conversation started with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And now the man is seeing that he can never perform his way into inheriting eternal life on his standard of neighbor love. He has been wrong his entire life about what, it, what is required when it comes to love. And if we're really getting the scope of what Jesus says is required, then it should rock us too. And it should wake us up from our sluggish, tame, Americanized, bare minimum approach to neighbor love, which is simply an expression of our small love for God. And once you hear what the call to neighbor love really consists of, then it's right for you to ask the question, who in the world can do this? Who can pull this off? Do you love like this? Do you love like this? Do I love like this? How is it possible for us to live into this truth? To live into this call? You need to hear the gospel tonight. And here is how you begin to live the life of neighbor love that Jesus says is required of those who would follow him. It must begin with the gospel. The only way that you can love neighbors in this way is if you are first the loved neighbor. Do you see that this story is most beautifully embodied in Jesus? After Genesis 3, we were left half dead on the side of the road, as it were. Ruin had entered into our lives and had entered into the entirety of the created order. It was all ruined. We were left half dead. There was no one else to help us. And then, in a most unexpected way, the one who should have treated us like an enemy treated us like his beloved. Jesus is the neighbor-loving God who, who loves us and then frees us to love like him. The only way you can live this out is if you first know yourself to be one who has been loved by Jesus in this way. To know that when you were in deep despair, when you were absolutely helpless, when there was no one to come to your rescue, the surprise of the ages took place. All of heaven was looking out and, and longing and questioning who was going to help these dying people. And then Jesus steps in as the answer to the question. And you know what he does? He moves toward us. 
He doesn't just yell from heaven, I hope you guys do better. I'm cheering you on from up here. No. The Son of God enters in and He draws near to us. He, he takes on our affliction. He takes up the responsibility for our healing. He dresses our wounds. He anoints us with His Spirit. He deprives Himself of refreshment in order to care for us. What else does it mean when Jesus is on the cross and He says, I thirst. He is deprived so that He can pour out on us the fullness of His resources. He doesn't leave us where He finds us, but He picks us up and He brings us to the place of care and comfort into relationship with Him, into His home, into His church. He provides care and comfort for us. He doesn't just dump us and roll out. He stays with us. He ensures that the resources that are needed for our total recovery are provided for. That's the good news. The good news is that this story is not just telling you what you are called to do. It's telling you what has happened to you at the hand of Jesus if you belong to Him. You were, you were the victim in the story. And this is how Jesus moved toward you. And now you know what He expects? He expects that you will bring Him glory by reenacting that kind of love, Calvary love, gospel love, in your relationships and in the place where God has situated you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not look at you and say, non-neighbor, that's the good news. He wasn't looking for excuses to get out of caring for us. He looked for the opportunities. And He took advantage of the opportunity at the call of the Father to come and rescue us. Do you want to understand what Christianity is about? That is the heartbeat. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's not about getting your act together so that you might be able to feel good about showing up at church. It's not about performing for God. It's not about loving your neighbor so you can come before God and say, look, I tried my best to love my neighbors. I think I inherited eternal life. No, that's not how it works. He acts first. God is the great initiator. Once you are a recipient of grace, then you become an actor in the story of grace. You become a proponent who advances grace in the lives of the people around you. That's the gospel. And it's out of the gospel that we then live the life that we're called to. We don't live out of this framework that if I don't, then God's going to get me. God's going to be mad at me. If you try to pursue the life of neighbor love out of shame, you'll fall apart. If you try to pursue the life of neighbor love out of guilt, you'll, you'll burn out. If it's like, oh, yeah, I feel so bad. I should have done it. You know, like, no, that's not the motivation. The motivation is look at the Savior that I have and look at how constant he is in his rescue of my life. Look at how faithful he is. Look at how good he is. 
Everything in me called out for condemnation, but everything in him called out for my restoration. And because I have that grace in my life, because I have him as my savior, I want I want to live in love toward the people around me. I want to tell you a secret. There was nothing lovable about you that made Jesus draw near to you. It wasn't like, oh, she's cute. Okay, I'll die on the cross for it. Okay, it's like, <laughs> no, no, that's not how it was. We were unlovely. We were not lovable. We were not likable. That's, the, that's what you see Jesus. The life of Jesus in the Gospels is meant to help us to reflect on the truth that Jesus touched the untouchables and he loved the unlovable and he forgave the unforgivable and he welcomed the undesirable and he saved those who were otherwise unsavable by grace alone through faith alone because of his goodness. We are the most unattractive bunch you can imagine. And yet he loves us because of who he is. And his love will make us lovely in the end. He will beautify us. We're called to live this out. Neighbor love in the kingdom of God is a response to a neighbor loving king. So how do you work this out? I want to give you three tips. First, you have to run all of your excuses to gospel logic. Run all of your excuses to gospel logic. And what do I mean by that? There is a logic to the gospel, okay? And I want you to think about it like this. When you have someone who is in need and you have an opportunity to help, any excuses that are running through your head, I want you to think about if Jesus had taken up those excuses, where would you be? Here, here are our excuses, you know? You know, we, we just don't have anything in common, you know? Like, it's just going to be, like, awkward, could you imagine the, the, the conversation in heaven? The father says to the son, I want you to go rescue those fools. And Jesus says, Father, like, we don't really have anything in common. Like, it's going to be, you know, like, I'm holy, they're not. I'm righteous, they're not. I'm amazing, they're terrible. You know, like, like we don't have anything in common. Or, you know, Father, it's going to be so awkward. Like, I'm going to come in the flesh. They're going to despise me and hate me. They're going to crucify me. And then I'm going to pop up from the grave and be like, hey. And they're going to be like, oh my God. Right? Like, it's going to be awkward, Father. Right? <laughs> Run all of your excuses through the gospel logic. And ask yourself, where would I be if Jesus had used these excuses? And then say, praise God, he didn't use these excuses. So now I'm not going to deploy these cheap excuses to avoid the call to neighbor love. Gospel logic. Next, think about becoming overdoing. The most important question that you have to answer every morning when you wake up is not, what do I have to do today? It's not about your to-do list. It's about the has-done list of Jesus, what he has already done. And as a result of what he has done for you, and as a result of who he says you are, the question is, who do you have to become today? The most important question is not what you have to do. If you focus on who must I become today in light of his love? Who must I become today in light of his patience and his goodness? Who must I become today in light of the freedom that he has given me? I must become more free. 
I must become more secure in who I am. I must become more fearless. I must become more courageous. Why? Whom, who should I fear? What can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? What, what can their opinion do to alter my destiny? What if they say bad things about me? What if they don't like me? So what? What, what difference does that make? Do you need the approval of your peers in order to flourish? No. Why? Because you have the approval of the only one who really matters, and that is God. And you have his approval because you're in union with Christ. And every time he looks at you, he sees the glory and the beauty of his son. And he looks on you with delight. He knows the past sins, the present sins, and the future sins. And he still set his love on you. So there's nothing that you're going to do that's going to make him give up on you. Or finally say, I didn't see that one coming. I'm done with them now. Think about how stupid that is. That's dumb. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The surest sign that God will never stop loving you is that he never began. His love is eternal. There was never a point in all of eternity past that God did not love you. And there's never a point in all of eternity future that he will not love you who belong to him. That's good news. So think about who you're becoming. Don't try to manufacture neighbor love. Seek what's going on in the heart and then practice it, right? Practice it and practice it by putting it in your calendar and praying about it. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm a pastor, Washington, D.C., and it's a diverse place, right? It's socially diverse. It's politically diverse. It's ethnically diverse. It's socioeconomically diverse. It's generationally diverse. What would you say if I said, man, I love the poor? And you looked at my calendar for the past year. And you didn't see one poor person on my calendar. And you looked at my calendar for the coming year. And you didn't see one poor person on my calendar. What would you conclude about my statement that I love poor people? Is it real? No. And you can add in any group into that. The surest way to begin to work this out and to hold yourself accountable to it is to put it in your calendar. Make plans to live in neighbor love. Think about the people that you're stepping over to get to the people who are like you. Who are you passing by? Who are you inviting to have lunch? Who are you inviting to go do activities? Who are you including? Do you have a, 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 an unspoken requirement that they have to meet a certain criteria before they'll get a welcome from you? Before they can warrant an invitation from you? What if, what if Jesus did that? Oh, it would just be the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's it. <laughs> but that's not how he does. Make plans for it. Hold yourself accountable to it. And pray for it. Pray for the opportunity to love people who are in need. And when the opportunity arises, pray for the grace to act on it. Just, and then, you know what? Here's the last thing. Share it with a friend who will pray with you and who will hold you accountable to it. Hey, how's it going? You said you were praying. Get, get specific people in mind. And think about who are you passing over in your dorm, on the campus, in some of your classes. You see that they don't have any friends. You see that they're lonely. 
And yet you just pass them by. You don't, you don't take the effort. You don't, you don't risk the awkwardness to just say, hey, I've been seeing you in this class, man. I just wanted to come say hi. You want to grab lunch sometime? Oh my gosh, that's scary. Really? Really? It's not that serious. Not when you are driven by the kind of neighbor love that Jesus has shown, right? I want you to imagine, just, just, think, just think in this little context, what would RUF at the University of Vermont look like if you became known as being the most radically neighbor-loving group on the campus? What would this group look like? Who is missing? Look around and think about who is missing right now that would be in here next year if y'all became a radically neighbor-loving community. You got them in your minds? Now, hatch plans. Plot on doing this kind of good. Plot on loving in these ways. And don't just let this be a weekend where you heard some neat things and maybe got a little bit of warm fuzzies or whatever, but then it goes in one ear and out the other. I want you to think, when you meet after this, I want you to make commitments to one another and say, let's talk about this and let's work this out together and let's pray that next year at this retreat, we're going to see some of the fruit of growing as a neighbor-loving community. And God's going to bless that. You don't know whose life you're going to play a part in changing. You have no idea. You'd start with the assumption that the people who are sitting off aren't going to want to be bothered by you. Some of them may not want to be bothered by you. And that's okay. What did Jesus do when you rejected him time and time again? Oh, shucks, Father, they don't like me. I better just stop going after him. No, he's the shepherd who leaves the 91 and pursues the one. He leaves the 99 to pursue the one. He was not deterred by our rebuffs. No, he loved us back to our senses because he knew ultimately that what he was trying to offer was what we needed most deeply. Love, Zora Neale Hurston was a poet of the Harlem Renaissance. He said, love makes the soul crawl out from its hiding place. What if there are people who are hiding because they're terrified that they're going to be rejected if they let their real self be known? And what if you could be the person that plays a part in seeing them gain freedom from that? What do you lose if you make an effort to love somebody and they reject you? Or what do you lose if you make an effort to love somebody and it ends up being awkward and doesn't go anywhere? What do you lose? Nothing. Nothing. You don't lose anything that you do in Jesus' name. It's never wasted. God doesn't waste anything in the lives of his people. So, I'm done, but I want, if there's anything I want you to leave this weekend with, it's this. You are the loved neighbor. Go be neighbor-loving people. And not just as individuals. Together. Make it a theme of your prayers and your longings and your actions. And think about what it is that you can do as a community to roll out the red carpet of welcome and hospitality for more of the folks on your campus. And watch what God will do. God delights in even our smallest little efforts. I got, I got more art projects in my house than I can shake a stick at from my kids. Now, when they bring those little art projects to me, Carissa brings me scribbles. 
Lorenzo, I don't know what he, that brother, I don't know what he be bringing. <laughs> when they bring them, what do you think I do with them? Oh, there is no symmetry to this piece. I just can't believe this trash, right? Like, no. No! I said, thank you, buddy. I appreciate it, right? Anything that they bring to their father in love, I delight in it, right? Anything that they bring to me in love, I delight in it. Now, do you think that our Heavenly Father is a... Is it, do you think I'm a better father than our Heavenly Father? He delights... And the little things that you do for him, to please him, to bring him delight. I love the, you know what? When you become a parent of multiple children, you also get the title of referee, right? There's, there's always some fight. It's like, hey, 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 who's doing that? What are y'all doing in there? It, you know, it's like there's always some chaos and someone's crying and, and you walk in the room. I was like, what's going on? And they're all pointing at someone else, right? Like there's always someone else. Involved. But you know what I love? It just, it just blesses me when Lorenzo, in his own funny little way, yet some of y'all have seen this little man running around here, you get a sense of him, right? When he says, Dad, I got Kawis's clothes out. I was like, man, you're, I appreciate that. That brother, let's just say, he's not going to be running any fashion shows in the future. He got different socks, he's got all different, but the small attempt to serve his sister just brings me such joy. The little efforts that you bring to the Father to try and love people in His name, to try and seek the well-being of other people, the good of other people. The Father delights in it. And guess what? He's going to bless your efforts. He's going to bless your efforts. And I'm, I'm believing God, I'm trusting God that you're going to take hold of this and He's going to take hold of you. And next year, Pastor John's going to tell me, man, you wouldn't believe this fall retreat this year. Like our students got, got really deep on the neighbor love, and we are seeing the fruit of that. And God blessed the cider donut ministry. Oh, hallelujah. You know what I'm saying? He uses it. So anyway, y'all, this is one of the critical things that most people in America see as missing from so many churches and so many Christians. And this is one of the key reasons why so many people are abandoning the Christian faith. It's not because it lacks intellectual credibility. It's because our witness has been blunted. Because we have failed on the point of neighbor love. But what kind of recovery could be possible? <laughs> you alright over here, brother? We might need to... <laughs> <laughs> He's getting choked up. The words get good to him. That's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Let's pray before anyone else starts falling out. Father, thank you for these friends. We're grateful for your word. I'm grateful for this time that we had together. And I pray that you would um, nag them with this message of neighbor love, that they would not be able to shake it off, that they wouldn't be able to drown it out, that they wouldn't be able to forget about it, and that they would find it beautiful and compelling and that by living into these truths, by living out this beauty, they would show Jesus to be more beautiful and more believable to the students on their campus, to their, to their peers, to their classmates, to their, their roommates and the folks in their dorms. I pray that they would make a thousand small decisions to choose the way of neighbor love out of that beautiful reminder 
that we are the loved neighbor. And Jesus is the one who has demonstrated neighbor love, not just as an example, but as our rescuer. So Lord, bless these friends in the strength of your love. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.